Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, We have a very special Al Franken podcast today. Coming to you from Four Seasons Total Landscape here in Philadelphia. And we have uh, something of an exclusive because with me is Victor Cowan, the Trump campaign attorney who booked Four Seasons Total Landscape for last Saturday's infamous press conference. Thank you uh, for joining me, Mr. Cowan. Uh, my pleasure, Al. You know, uh, we on the uh, Trump legal uh, team have been uh, on the receiving end of a lot of scorn and ridicule, but it turns out uh, that booking our press conference here at Four Seasons Total Landscaping was actually a stroke of genius. Well, how so? Al, we are very excited by a development that we think uh, may turn the tide in this whole election. Wow. Yes, wow. Explain. Uh, My pleasure, Al. As you can see, right across the street from Four Seasons Total Landscape is the Delaware Valley Cremation Center. Uh Uh-huh. And while Mr. Giuliani was holding the press conference, I happened to slip over there and take a look because I had never uh, been inside a crematorium before. And you discovered something interesting there? Ah, yes. uh, Very. It seems that on Wednesday morning, just the day after the election, a Mr. Peter R. Janikowski uh, was cremated at Delaware Valley Cremation Center. And it turns out that Mr. Janikowski had died on Sunday, November 1st, a full two days before the election. But, get this, Mr. Janikowski, a lifelong Democrat, had cast an early vote two weeks previously. So what you're saying is that's right. We had concrete evidence that dead people have been casting votes here in Pennsylvania. And believe me, there's a whole lot of crematoriums here throughout the Keystone State. Uh, Trump lawyers have been fanning out throughout Pennsylvania, inspecting the logs of crematoriums in Scranton, Altoona, Beaver Falls, three in Pittsburgh, including Shalom Cremation and Burial, which we believe almost certainly will be a treasure trove of voter fraud. And do you really think that could make up the 45,000 vote differential here in in Pennsylvania? Uh, There's really no way of knowing, Al. We'll just have to do a thorough inventory of every crematorium not just here in Pennsylvania, but in Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. And by all accounts, that will be impossible to accomplish before the December 8th safe harbor deadline. And that means that the state legislatures in those states will have to choose the electors, throwing the election to the rightful winner of the 2020 election, Donald J. Trump. Okay, well... Thank you, Mr. Cowan. Well, a whole lot of people who have been ridiculing me are going to look pretty silly when President Trump is sworn in for his second term on January 20th. So, so who's the idiot now, huh? Victor Cowan, Trump election attorney with uh, something of a Hail Mary pass. Well, uh, unfortunately, right after that, we we had to stop taping just as the uh, mower cut out. The owner of uh, Fantasy Island Adult Bookstore started using a, a leaf blower. And it just, just became impossible. Anyway, we've got a great one today. You know, finally. I mean, the last three or four have just been absolute disasters. My, uh, my guest is Stuart Stevens, one of the Lincoln Project guys. Uh, Stuart was George W. Bush's top media guy 
and uh, campaign manager in, in 2000, and Mitt Romney's uh, chief strategist in 2012, a longtime Republican political operative. And you may very well have heard of or even read his book, It Was All a Lie. In the interview, you'll, you'll hear uh, Stewart say that a lot of these books by anti-Trump Republicans should be titled, If They'd Only Listened to Me. But uh, Stewart's book is, is, is very different. It's a, uh, it's a mea culpa, and he takes responsibility uh, for being uh, part of a big lie. It, um, it's a little more complicated than that, and I think you'll uh, enjoy this interview, I, um, you know, for once. Uh, but let me address this this whole thing about uh, Republicans saying, well, you know, there's a lot of dead people registered to vote. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's the first thing most families do when uh, an elder dies it, to call the county clerk and make sure they take grandpa off the voting rolls. I, I know when I'm on my deathbed surrounded by my kids and grandchildren and hopefully great-grandchildren, one of the things I'm, I'm going to be just obsessed with is making sure that the moment I die that one of them is going to make that call. Okay, Grandpa, we, we'll do it. You sure? Because I don't want to be a dead guy on the voting rolls. Just completely undermines the legitimacy of our... <sighs> Our democracy. Grandpa, let's let's just talk about how much we love you. Well, if you love me, you'd spend a lot more time assuring me that the minute I kick, you're going to call the county clerk. Dad, look, uh, Avery has the phone number written down right here. Yeah, Grandpa, see? 612-555-1212. Okay, but what if I die after business hours? Wait. I think this is this is it. I'm I'm going. Oh, Grandpa, Grandpa, we love you. Call the clerk. Gurgle, gurgle. Grandpa, oh, Grandpa. Wait, I'm back. I'm back. Don't call yet. And curtain. <laughs> you know everything they say is just. Ridiculous. Could someone just remind everybody that four years ago, Trump claimed that Hillary got three million votes from illegal immigrants and that he appointed a commission, the Kobach Commission, led by Chris Kobach, this right wing nutcase, and they found nothing, nothing, nothing. One day into his presidency, Trump had his press secretary lie about the size of the crowd at his inaugural. Kellyanne Conway introduced America to the concept of alternative facts. He lied to the American people about COVID. The White House is now the world's most dangerous workplace. The White House might as well be a meatpacking plant in South Dakota. They held super spreader events at the White House and all over the battleground states in Wisconsin. In my home state of Minnesota, we are spiking. We're spiking all over the country. Republican governors are finally issuing mask mandates. People are dying because of Donald Trump. We have 4% of the world's population and over 20% of the world's fatalities from COVID. What else do you have to know? And just the lameness of his lies. He trotted out one in the uh, last week of, of the campaign. He told crowds uh, that doctors would put down COVID as the cause of death because they somehow were paid more if their patients died of COVID. It was, you know, just some spaghetti against the wall, hoping it might stick. How in God's name 
Does anyone believe anything this guy says? Well, I, I speak to that in, in an op-ed I wrote this week in the LA Times. It's about the two completely different information universes that Americans live in. If you're listening to this, if you were really panicked and depressed on election night when it looked like Trump could actually win, then you're in one universe. And if you think that the election was stolen from this president, well, then you're not listening to this. And next week's podcast will be on that topic. My guest will be Tim Kendall, who is uh, one of the Silicon Valley techies who are in this this uh, Netflix documentary, Social Dilemma. Uh, Kendall was Facebook's vice president of monetization. So he was instrumental in, in taking this problem of these two completely different information universes and take just taking it to a whole new level. So make sure you listen next week, and you can read my uh, L.A. Times op-ed on my website, alfranken.com. So we haven't heard uh, from Trump in over a week. Reports are that uh, it is dawning on him that he lost. I just love that the Department of Homeland Security announced that this election was the most secure national election in our history. And I love that Georgia is going to do a hand recount. As as someone who has been through a statewide hand recount, I can tell you that at at most this could possibly change the margin in either direction by at most, I don't know, 1,200 votes. So basically this hand recount is just going to confirm to everyone that Joe Biden won Georgia by somewhere in the range of I don't know, 12,000 to 16,000 votes, and will give people faith in our elections, which is great. You know, I have uh, said before, in fact, I think it was well over a year ago when there was some, some crisis, I said, now is not the time for the Joint Chiefs to take the nuclear code away from Donald Trump. Now is the time for them to give him the wrong code. And again, that was my first thought when, when the networks declared Biden the winner. And I tweeted it, and it got a lot of reaction. And a lot of people commented, oh, my God, you're right. And there were a few people who wondered how that might play out. And I guess, I don't know, at a low point emotionally, maybe Trump would ask for the football and the military attache would bring it to the Oval. And uh, Trump would punch in the code, the wrong code, to launch the nukes. And then the attache would escort him uh, to the bunker, uh, which would have a number of uh, freezers filled with uh, Big Macs. And there'd be, you know, a microwave and, you know, leave him there. And the next day, the attache would show up. Uh, in a hazmat suit and say, uh, good news, Mr. President, we uh, completely wiped out Russia and China, but um, I do have to report, sir, that we did take it on the chin a bit, uh, but there is sign of human life in the Idaho Rockies and along the Nevada-Utah border. So, Mr. President, you're, you're just going to have to remain here uh, in the bunker uh, for I want to know, about a couple months, sir. And then, come January 20th, they would escort him out of the White House and arrest him for the attempted murder of, of 7 billion people. Pence, of course, would have been sworn in and uh, uh, would go to the inaugural. Anyway, that's how I think it's going to play out. And frankly, that's... Just as likely as any scenario, I I think. (laughs) Okay, look, my guest today is Stuart Stevens, big Republican political strategist, campaign manager for George W. Bush's winning presidential campaigns, uh, one of the Lincoln Project guys, in fact, one of the the media geniuses who made those great ads. Uh, Now, we, we did record this before the election, but mainly we talk about the Republican Party, about um, how is all a bunch of lies and also about where the 
party is is going post this election and uh, i think um for once you're gonna enjoy this one the best way to learn a language immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day but if that's not in the cards this year you can still learn a language the second best way and that's with babble Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, uh, with me, Stuart Stevens, uh, author of uh, It Was All a Lie. Is that is that the title? Oh, it Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Right, okay. And uh, I'm sorry I didn't have you on right when the book was hitting because that would have helped you. I want to talk to you anytime about anything, Al, so... I know, good. I know. We're friends, so let me admit that. And I think we met in uh, 2000 during the campaign. Uh, oh, that's right, we campaign. did. Yes, you were very gracious. We had a bet on who was going to win the, the campaign, and um, you more or less lost, though that could be debatable. Was it a gentleman's bet, or did I, was it, there it, money? It was a bet for dinner, and I had actually forgotten about it, and you called me up afterwards and said, let the healing begin. And we went, we, went out, we went out to dinner and had a great time. Okay, let's get, let's get to the premise of your book. It was all a lie, because it was. I agree with you. And basically what you're saying is the party you worked for, <laughs> the Republican Party, pretty much, I mean, you know, with some exceptions, it's all just been, it's all been bullshit. And uh, whether it's uh, talking about, oh, I don't know, the importance of uh, balancing the budget. Oh, my God about uh, tax cuts paying for themselves, all that stuff, which I just witnessed every day when I was in the Senate, the hypocrisy and the bad faith of the people in your party. And I guess, and now you're, are you part of the Lincoln Project? I am part of the Lincoln Project, yeah. i sitting here right now in Utah making ads, um, just making one right before we did this and going to make one right after we finish. Oh, I should explain also that, you're, you may ask, you went to film school, right? I did. I went to UCLA, and I also went to uh, AFI. The American Film Institute. That's really how you got into this. You were asked to make an ad for somebody running for something, right? That's exactly right, yeah. He couldn't afford to hire anybody. Nobody thought he would win. <laughs> so I made ads. He ended up winning. And I, I wanted to write, and no one would hire me to write, so I could do this and make some money. And it was kind of like migrant labor work, except a lot easier. And then eventually I got where I could write books and work some in television. But I, I found that I was liking the, the politics. I liked how different it was in writing and that you worked with people rather than just sitting by yourself. <laughs> yeah, um, there is that. Yeah. In a campaign, you do work with a lot of people. Yeah. Let me ask you about that race, and uh, let, let's let people know a little bit more of your background. You grew up in Mississippi, so was this a Mississippi race? Yep. It was. Uh, I'm a seventh-generation Mississippian. When I was in high school, I was a page for a congressman named Dad Cochran, who was the first Republican elected from Mississippi uh, as a congressman since Reconstruction. And let's go. Let's talk about why that happened for just a second. Uh, it's because 
after the Civil War, everybody in the South became a Democrat because the Republicans were the party of Lincoln and the party that prosecuted the Civil War. And then the carpetbaggers came down and everybody in the South, all the white people just were really resentful <laughs> and became Democrats until 1964, right? Uh, pretty much, yes. Uh, it always, you know, one of the things that astonished me when I was writing this book is, and I sort of knew this, but hadn't really focused on the actual numbers. In 1956, Dwight Eisenhower got almost 40% of the black vote. In 1964, it dropped to 7%. And that's because Barry Goldwater had voted against uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And, and you know what? African-Americans kind of thought, hmm. How about that? Uh, I don't like him. Yeah. So you you say a seventh generation Mississippian. Let me ask you, yeah. are you the first generation not racist? No, you know, I come from a family of um, ministers and lawyers and judges, Methodist ministers. You know, there's this phrase people used to use in the South, are you good on race or bad on race? And they were always good on race. My grandmother... But but wait a minute, in Mississippi, what does good on race mean at that time? Well, does that mean an interesting what, question. what we think of as bad on race? No, <laughs> I mean, no, I, no, good on race meant that you, you know, were not a segregationist. My grandmother on my father's side was the Mississippi chairwoman of the Southern Women's Anti-Lynching Society. Um, okay, which, that must have been controversial. Which was uh, a fascinating organization. It was had state chapters. It was founded, I think, in Atlanta. And uh, my uncle uh, became a full-time civil rights lawyer. And uh, he was a, a devout Methodist and really came to it through the church. Okay, 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 okay. I got it. The Stevens are good on this. Okay. You know, we did not have an anti-lynching. What's the name of the organization? Southern Women's Anti-Lynching. You didn't have that in Minnesota. Right. We didn't yeah. have an organization like that in Minnesota. Yeah. But Mississippi kind of had to. So, okay, so 64, uh, you elect the first Republican congressman, Thad Cochran, who'd been a colleague of he mine. He got elected later. He got elected. Uh, he ran for the Senate in 1978. Mm -hmm. And uh, his chief of staff was running for his congressional seat. And I had gotten to know his chief of staff because I was a page in his office and he was my boss. He was running against Senator Stennis's son, Senator Stennis being the longtime, very powerful Mississippi senator, segregationist. Everyone thought his son would win. He was a powerful state representative. Uh, this guy couldn't afford to hire anybody. So he called me up when I was at film school and said, like, you have to make commercials. And I said, that's great, but I really don't know how to make commercials. I just make these stupid little films. And he said, well, it doesn't matter. You have to do it. So I did. Well, that's and, what commercials are. And he won. And um, then I discovered that, you know, I could get paid to do it. Basically, what I understand about you is that you like politics. You like campaigning. You didn't. You don't care about governance particularly. I, I think uh, somewhere you said like, I wanted to take Baghdad but not govern it. Is that is that the phrase? The taking of Baghdad, not the running of it. Right. And and you know who else was like that? Yes. Uh, George W. <laughs> yeah, Bush. I'm going to say that. Yes. And there's a lot of truth to that too. And Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And Paul Bremer. And uh, yeah, I work for all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's how I became a full consultant. And I kept writing and I wrote books and I worked on television shows, but then I worked in campaigns. Okay. Now, throughout this book, there, the book is a little bit of a mea culpa. Yeah, I say a lot. Yeah. When did you quit the Republican Party or have you? Yeah, no, I wouldn't consider myself a Republican now. Trump getting elected was it with me. Okay. So, um, so that that and that, that was obviously with a lot of people. But then going back in this book, you're going back and you're basically saying that the dominant gene in the Republican Party is the the awful gene, the hypocritical gene, the gene that says they care about deficits, but they don't. And the, the gene that suppresses votes, basically. There's a reason Trump got elected, and it's the Republican Party that you work for wasn't exactly what you thought it was. Is that that? Well, fair? you know, I go back and I trace. I think there's always two 
two sides to the Republican Party, to put it in a simplistic way, that goes in the post-World War II party. So it goes back to Eisenhower and uh, McCarthy. You know, I worked, I went to work for uh, then Governor Bush in spring of 99. And at that time, I think you could say that conservatism was in many ways a victim of its own success. We'd won the Cold War, more or less. Welfare had been a big issue for conservatives. Clinton, you know, famously ended welfare as we know it. Uh, crime was a big issue for conservatives, but crime was going down. Clinton, almost a Republican Democrat in a way. Yeah, he ran as a different kind of uh, Democrat, which in many ways meant he was more conservative. Taxes were no longer, you know, at 70 percent. So Bush really asked himself, you know, what, what did it mean to be a conservative? He came up with compassionate conservatism. The first manifestation of that in a legislative sense was No Child Left Behind, which, you know, he famously signed with uh, Ted Kennedy standing over his right shoulder, which today that photo would be presented in the Republican Party like a war crimes tribunal document. In retrospect, the efforts to build a new Republican Party that would really be a compassionate conservatism died on 9-11 when Bush became a wartime president. So a lot of us associated with Bush, I think, thought the side of our party was inevitable that we were the dominant gene, as you say, and that if no other reason than self-preservation with a changing demographic uh, country, that that party would, that side of the party would have to become the commanding side of the party. As it turns out, we were wrong. Yeah, like look at immigration. I mean, uh, uh, George W. Bush tried to get some yeah. uh, immigration reform. And Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty in 86, signed a bill that made everyone in the country before 83 legal. And now, you know, with Trump, we fixed that immigration problem because no one can leave the country or come into the country. So, you know, we've, we've managed to solve this. Um, Mexico won't let us in. That was, uh, you know, the upside for him in COVID. <laughs> yes, exactly. Upsides, you, can't, you can't drive to Calgary. So let, let me talk about Bush for a second, okay. because, um, I mean... Bush, Bush, yes, he, he talked about compassion conservatism. He he did PEPFAR. He did you know some really good things about AIDS in Africa and refused to vilify Muslims. Yes, kind of a one eighty from many aspects of Trump, but but a lot of bullshit there. Let me let me point to one thing. During the campaign, I remember there was a debate uh, between him and Gore. All right. And in it, he said, this was the quote, by far, the vast majority of my tax cut goes to those at the bottom. Right. So a majority is what is 50 percent plus. Right. But this wasn't just a majority of the tax cut. It was a vast majority. Now, vast is space is vast. Right. Past yeah, history. that's that's uh, Star Trek time. Vast. But it wasn't just a vast majority. And I think vast majority gets you majority gets you to 50 percent plus something. Vast majority gets you, I'd say, to 85 percent. Don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, By far, a vast majority gets you to 98 percent of my tax rate goes to those at the bottom. And my God, it did not. I remember that I, I do remember this while the campaign was happening that you guys staged some event and you're the campaign manager. So I know you remember this. You staged some event where you found a family that got a tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we had a phrase for this, like Bush tax families or something. Lyrical right. Like but, that. The, <laughs> but the contortions you had to go through to find that family were hilarious. To find that family, they had to have so many kids. <laughs> they had to have yeah, house payments. Yeah, yeah. They had to, you, you, I'm right, aren't I? We were wrong, okay? I mean. But what I'm saying, it was all a lie, was you were, you were, you were doing, I mean, and it is a mea culpa. I give you all the credit in the world here. The first sentence in this book is blame me. So. And I am. That's okay. what I'm doing here. <laughs> so I don't think. Just, so, so why are you having, why are you objecting? I'm just doing what the friggin' you say in the book. There's a whole there's a whole trope of books written by Washington people that were basically if only they had listened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, <laughs> in, in, in many ways, and yours is if only they had not listened to me. Uh, well, if they had listened to me, they would have listened to someone saying the same thing. Oh, you're selling yourself short. 
one of the things I analyze in this is, you know, listen, I think all great public policy disasters are rooted in some great fundamental dishonesty. And one of the great dishonesties of the Republican Party has been uh, fiscal policy with tax cuts. And this is just a fact. So in 94, Clinton passes tax increases, right? I, along with you know every other Republican consultant, made lots of ads predicting <laughs> that this would be a disaster economically. So we were wrong. It was one of the factors for the greatest post-war economic expansion uh, in the country. And actually balanced the budget. And, and the last time. So if you go back, and I write about this, going back and looking at the 2000 Gore-Bush campaign is extraordinary because it was at a time of peace and prosperity. One of the big issues in the debates was not terrorism, which never came up, never came up, amazingly, but what to do with the surplus. <laughs> that was actually debated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like... We're going to spend an hour now on what to do with the surplus. It seems to be the most pressing issue facing America. Do you remember what Alan Greenspan said regarding the Bush tax cut. Do you remember this at all? No. Okay. Alan Greenspan said that we were in danger, if we continued this way, of paying off the national debt. And if we do did that, we couldn't sell bonds or something like that. And that, and that was a danger. Oh, my God. And it was basically the economy was expanding. You know, there's no reason to do a tax cut when you're, the economy is expanding. And, of course, Obama inherited the worst economy since the end of the Great Depression. Yep. And there's a lot of people to blame for that, I guess. Um, but one of them is Bush and because uh, he was, you know, he was the president. Let's talk about deficit stuff. Let me let's talk about that, because this is a huge lie yes. that member Cheney said uh, deficits don't matter. Which was more true than not, but yes, he's, you're not supposed to say that out loud. Yeah. When I was, okay, so I'm in the, in the Senate. I'm, I'm asked to come to this kind of bipartisan meeting to talk about Simpson Bowles. And so it's kind of moderate Democrats and supposedly moderate Republicans, except Tom Coburn was there because he's, was a deficit hawk. So we're talking about Simpson Bowles, and I'm listening to them, and all I'm thinking is, well, wait a minute. All, all the Republicans are doing, the reason they want to balance the budget or don't want the deficit is, is so that the economy doesn't expand. And this was very early on in Obama's administration, and we were still just recovering. And I actually said this, which was a mistake. I said, you guys are just, you don't really care about the deficit. <laughs> you never do when you're in charge. And then I wasn't invited back to the meeting. When there's a Democratic president, they care about the deficit because they don't want the Democratic president to spend any money to do anything the Democrats want to do, which is like, oh, you know, provide education for people and health care and those kinds of things. I think you have to live in reality, and reality is that the deficit goes up considerably more under Republican presidents than Democratic presidents. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. We're going to be right back with uh, Stuart Stevens, author of It Was All a Lie. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hey, let's talk about sort of the right-wing propaganda machine. And you write a lot of stuff here that is profoundly true, which is that we have like two sets of facts in this country, which is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And because let's say Biden wins. Let's not assume a damn thing. Everybody go vote. But if Biden wins, we're still going to have 40% of Americans who are watching this, getting their news from Fox, targeted on Facebook with just right-wing baloney. And you speak to this very well. I, I see this as a failure of the Republican Party. Fox News didn't create the Republican Party. The Republican Party created Fox News. You know, you open an Italian restaurant and people go to it. It's not the Italian restaurant that made you like Italian food. You're just offering something that people like. The role of a serious governing party is to deal in truth. This is the great, one of the great failures of the Republican Party, that it is uh, not spoken to as truth. So you have these very well-educated people, people like, say, Josh Hawley of Missouri. Here's a guy who went to Stanford, who taught at uh, St. George's in London, which I think was founded in 1400-something, then went to Yale Law School, wrote a very good book, uh, biography of Teddy Roosevelt when he was 28, published by Yale University Press, and he's railing against the elites. It's like, really, Josh? Really? Ted Cruz, you know, who's punched every uh, establishment ticket there is to punch. Princeton undergraduate, Harvard Law. Supreme Court clerk, worked in the White House, married to a woman who's a managing partner, Goldman Sachs, who was educated in Brussels. And, you know, they, they were born, born, he was born, he was from, grew up in Vancouver, uh, and she's from the West Coast, and they rail against, you know, coastal elites. Yeah, let me tell a little story about Ted. Uh, so we're, we're in a hearing on, after Shelby County, we're trying, you know, Democrats in, in the Senate are trying to write legislation to repair what the Supreme Court said was wrong with it. So we have these hearings and there's this real right-wing Republican talking about why we shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't fix, you know, get, get rid of uh, pre-clearance, I mean, restore pre-clearance and all this stuff. But it turns out that like he and Ted go way back. Maybe they clerk together or something like that. And then so I've been trying to figure out like what kind of jerk is Ted? You know, I'm just, and so he gets to Ted and he goes, we go back a long way. Dare I say, I shall tell no tales. And I went, oh, I get it. He's a Harvard asshole. <laughs> uh, yeah, Harvard asshole, when they refer to Yale as, dare I say, New Haven. Yes, that's what he is. He's Princeton, Harvard. Listen, in 2000, uh, when I was doing debate prep for Bush, Ted Cruz was working in the campaign. And I heard that there was a guy who had been like a great college debater. And I was like, well, shouldn't we get this guy involved in the debate prep? And the universal answer when I said this to anyone who worked in the campaign was, have you met him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. And my answer was no. And they go, well, when you do get back to me. And let's just say Ted Cruz didn't end up helping in the debate prep. Okay, we're going a little in circles because we're talking about right-wing uh, press, but that started with Rush, right? Rush Limbaugh. There's a, a tremendous book called Messengers on the Right by a woman who teaches at UVA. She had the experience, she's from Iowa. Her father uh, became a Fox, you know, devotee. And she asked herself, like, how did this happen? How did my reasonable sound sort of Iowa farmer become this, you know, 
fall down this right-wing rabbit hole. And her name's Nicole Hemmer, H-E-M-M-E-R. Really, it goes back to 1988 um, when the fairness doctrine was no longer applied. And that really gave birth to Rush Limbaugh. Fairness doctrine was he had to sort of present both sides. As yes. There are always just two sides. Which would stretch to a point. I mean, there were prominent right-wing publications that uh, existed a lot. Newsletters were big then and radio shows. Yeah, you talk about uh, uh, National Review and how racist it was at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I think is important. And You know, now we look back on William Buckley as sort of this lost intellectual erudite representative of the right, which he was. But we also forget that, you know, he began as a stone-cold racist defending segregation. And the second book after he wrote God and Man at Yale was a defense of McCarthy. Buckley later recanted to his credit, but still the origins of that erudite intellectual voice was a racist voice. Uh, yeah, but I, I do think the Fairness Doctrine goes in 88, and that's that gives birth to Rush. This goes back to how awful the Republican Party has been. It goes back to 94. Rush has made an uh, honorary member of the class of 95. Uh, Gingrich now is speaker. Gingrich, you write about Gingrich being just uh, this sort of crazed egotist, right? <laughs> that would be a generous definition. So Rush is a part of that class of right. 95 because he helped them get elected. And he just has, you know, 20 million listeners a day, at least, you know, for the longest yep. time. I don't know what it is now. Me either. And then you get Fox, of course. And now then you get the Internet, you get Breitbart, and you get Facebook. You don't consume information now to inform your opinion. You consume information to confirm your opinion. There, that's really well said. There you go. And then Trump put it on steroids, right, by just giving voice to that. Look, I, I think there's always been a movement of hate in this country. So you go back to the 30s. There's a huge fascist movement in America. So why is it that we didn't become fascist when a lot of other European countries did? Probably because of Roosevelt. And had Lindbergh been president, we probably would have become fascist. We'd still be the same country. So, you know, my conclusion to this is leaders matter. So what's so depressing and troubling and frightening about what has happened to the Republican Party is it is a major political party of, you know, the world's only superpower that has endorsed and legitimized racism and hate as a fundamental uh, ideology. And it's no longer pretending otherwise. It's a white nationalist party. And history shows that when that happens, uh, it's hard to undo. And it's long and it's bloody. Hopefully it'll only be long with, with, with Trumpism. That's our best hope. Let's say Trump loses. Yeah. And let's say there isn't a, you know, a real violent... <laughs> Let's right. say it doesn't go to a 6-3 Supreme Court. Let's say Biden becomes uh, president. And let's say even that uh, the Senate goes Democratic. I'm not going to ask you what those guys are going to do. What happens to the Republican Party? What do they do? I know what's going to happen to the Republican Party. The Republican Party is going to continue down the same bleak road. So you look at these people like Nikki Haley, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz are all running for president already in 24. These are deeply compromised people who knew that Donald Trump was a disaster, was a threat to the country, was a threat to the Republican Party. They expressed this and then they completely uh, caved in to Trump. They're cowards. And this is going to continue. So here's, here's a perfect example. There's sort of another Republican Party out there and out of these uh, very successful Republican governors in blue states, uh, Phil Scott, Baker, Larry Hogan. I work for all these guys, right? They can't pick their own state party chairman. They're Trump people. So even in these states where you have incredibly popular governors, they can't control their own state party. And that's just, you know, you know how shocking that is. It's sort of like a, that is. You know, a coach who can't put their own players in. Yeah, that's, that is weird. It just shows how deep Trumpism is in this party. And it's not going to go away. So the party stays the same. Now, demographically... Demographically, it's doomed. So, look, those 15 years 
old and under in America, the majority are non-white. So the odds look really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And that's the end of the Republican. That's the end of the Republican Party. What's going to happen to the Republican Party? We know what's going to happen to it. It's going to happen. What happened in California? It's now in third place. I mean, it wasn't long ago, the Republican Party in California, it was the beating heart of the Republican Party was California. It was electoral city. Reagan. Reagan. Reagan we never figured. I mean, you know, Bush carried it in 88. It's now in third place. And even more importantly, or devastating or whatever, it's not even involved in any public policy decisions of note. It doesn't really matter what the Republican Party does in California. No one cares. And that's what's going to happen. So, you know, they say, why aren't there really three parties in this country and their third party? I really think there are. I think there's two parties inside the Democratic Party. Call it a Biden wing, call it a Sanders wing, simplistically. But the the future of the country in a public policy way is going to be decided by that battle inside the Democratic Party. It's not going to matter what Republicans do. I mean, take national health insurance. We really think in 10, 15 years, we're going to be the only Western democracy that doesn't have national health insurance. No, it's impossible to imagine. It's not going to happen. But 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 by national health insurance, let me let me just clarify that yeah. because there's a different. It, it, there's all kind. Every other developed country yes, has yes, yes. universal health care. They all yes. have basically as good outcomes as, as we do, if not better, better or, much better. And they and it costs about half as much. When you say national health, it's not they're they're all different. We do not have universal care, and, that, no, and that's don't. that's and a will. coverage, and that and we, and we yes, that's what you're talking about. I just yes. a right. national health, yeah, okay, that's what so I'm talking. We're going to have there's that. a distinction what, that I like to make, and and what that's going to be is going to be decided inside the Democratic Party. Republicans are just going to say no, and it's not going to matter that they say no. So what will ha- probably happen, I think we're in for a period of center-left government for a long time. Eventually, that'll go too far. And uh, some sane center-right party will emerge that won't be based on cultural wars that we've already lost. I mean, the Republicans lost cultural wars. Was okay, okay. Let me ask you this, just curiously. Yes. In what way will it go too far? Oh, um, maybe it'll go too far raising taxes. Maybe it'll go too far um, in trying to determine uh, yeah, too far providing in, childcare for people. Or um, listen, I mean, I, I just want to know look, what if you look at Sweden, right? I spend a lot of time in Sweden, right? Uh, there's patterns there where uh, government goes too far to the left and it's countered, and so it'll it'll happen. In Norway, you get a year of leave after you have a, a baby that's split between the parents. So you spend a year with your child, baby. Then they have childcare from age one to six. Yes. And, and they're early childhood specialists <laughs> who do that, who provide that care. So people can go to work and know that they have that. Then, then they have no kindergarten. They have first grade. The history of, of, of parties going too far one way or the other, it's not, it's not confined to the right. It happens on, on the left. And out of that, there will come a center-right party. But listen, the, the main thing that I think is just so, what's so extraordinary now about what's happening, among other things, is the complete defeat of Republicans in the cultural war. So here you take the Confederate flag, right? My home state of Mississippi finally takes down the state flag, which is basically the Confederate battle flag, right? And that same week, Trump manages to get in a fight with NASCAR over NASCAR banning the Confederate flag. So here you have the Republican Party on the wrong side of a cultural war with NASCAR. And with Mississippi. They're on the wrong side of a mask war with Walmart. Walmart. I thought one of Biden's best moments in that debate was when he talked about the suburbs. And, you know, I, you take your average teenager in Mississippi, right? You know, they'd a lot rather be a black rap star than Robert E. Lee. I mean, they, 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 they're not living in this world that Trump thinks exists. In fact, one of, the, one of the reasons that they finally took down the flag was every football coach in Mississippi from a major institution, from Ole Miss to the historically black colleges, came to the state legislature and said, take down the flag. It hurts our yeah. team. Also, the NCAA said we're not going to have tournaments there. Yeah, and right? that's when it got real serious. 
Yeah. That that was it. That was, <laughs> that was it. Like, <laughs> Let's face it. You know, right. <laughs> this is getting real. That civil war was problematic, but if we're not going to have playoffs, <laughs> you know, is, that was uh, that was really it. That's is, that's the is, uh, uh, point of principle. Well, thank you, Stuart. Uh, this has been terrific. Uh, the book again is it was all a lie, and it was. Uh, thanks, Stuart, and um, uh, we'll, we'll see you somewhere when all of this, this COVID stuff Th- is thank, over. Thanks for having me on, Al. Here's the better days ahead. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember Remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam packed, music filled weekly party where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.